Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me on Jen Taylor Rerouting. My goal is that every guest becomes a friend and I feel truly blessed to know the people that I've interviewed. If you want to know more information about me from being a guest on this show to my virtual assistant services for podcasters, or perhaps you want to be a published author, I have coaching and ghostwriting services for that. You can find everything that you want to know on jentaylor.net. Remember to give a shout out, share, like, Give me some feedback on all of my interviews. I'm happy to join in on the conversation with you. Have a great day. Today, I am thrilled to be able to interview Carmen Reed Gilkison. Carmen, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Fantastic. This is like the most fun thing I ever do, so I am always happy. It is um, fun. You are the founder of a company called Locally Rocks, and it's locally.rocks online. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that and how you got that started and went in that direction. I took your quiz, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, so like I, uh, Carmen has a quiz on there to find out if you're a, a small business owner, where do your people hang out? Um, so yeah, I stalked you thoroughly. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's so okay, that's me, good. Tell me about Locally Rocks. So Locally Rocks came about because, you know, I'm 50 something and I'm in an excellent career currently actually. And Locally Rocks is my side business that I'm looking to segue out of corporate America into full time shortly, hopefully. But what happened was, you know, I've been at this company for a long time, great career, nothing to complain about, but I kind of woke up one day and was like, what is this all there is? Not that I have anything to complain about, but it wasn't uh, exciting anymore. And so I had to figure out what was I going to do? How was I going to help people? I wanted to really be able to help people and um, trying to come up with what was I going to do? My, my background in corporate is content marketing. So it was a nice natural segue into social media marketing. And as I started discussing things, when I'd go on shopping trips with my mom and my daughter or on vacations, we always stop by the little shops. Uh, and so I talked to the shop owners and found out that there was a real common thread there of them being worried about big box stores and online putting them out of business. And so I really realized that, you know, there's, there is a way to enable them, empower them with social media marketing, and it really kind of levels the playing field. So that's how it came about. And so I'm loving it because to be able to take someone from real overwhelm into that aha moment and then have them be able to go on with the tools that they need to help keep their passion alive is just great. I get it totally because the people I coach, it depends on uh, our ages because mm -hmm. I'm almost 47. So, but we find the social media that we connect with and we're comfortable with, I think. So when I took your quiz, my favorite is Instagram. And there's, there's a couple reasons why it's my favorite. One, because it automatically posts to Twitter and Facebook. Mm -hmm. So it's like a three for one. And also I love that it's, I just really like the platform. I'm very comfortable with the platform that you're sharing, but it's not super interactive. And right. I actually like that. And so when I took your quiz, it said Instagram. So I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's a little overwhelming and there's so many different 
platforms, I tell my clients, don't start something that you've never done before that you're not comfortable with because it's never going to work. Right. But I mean, with you, with your system, if I had taken the test and it had told me something I either wasn't using or not using well, it's a good way to think, okay, well, maybe that should work for me. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at it from kind of a different perspective. Right. You can. And the thing is that there, you know, all of the big, the top five, which are what the results, the possible results of that quiz are, any of those are, you're going to have, you know, there are millions of people online. You're not going to go wrong. However, there are just some that are better for different businesses. And I think you bring up a great point that you love Instagram. So that's where you gravitate to. That's the most important thing. If you're not going to like what you're doing, you're not going to do it. So and all of us small business owners, especially the digital nomadics type of businesses, because you can take your business pretty much anywhere. You're online. Right, right. Right. I mean, we, we want to spend, I don't want to spend time doing something that I don't like. Right. That, that takes the fun out of it, right? Exactly. So you help people with social media, capitalize on their social media marketing to build business. Exactly. So that my goal is to help them generate leads. And so really the one thing too that I like to caution people about is that, you know, we don't own the social platforms where it's kind of rented land. So you really need to have a website. You need to be able to lead people back to your website and into your stores if you have a brick and mortar, which is what people want to do anyway. So it's structured around generating leads in that way. Well, I think that stuff's exciting because I don't get it. So <laughs> when you don't understand, ladies and gentlemen, you find a resource. So there right. you go. But yeah. We can't and, be everything to everyone, right? Right. And that's the point. That's what you say is exactly right. What you don't understand, you find a resource because I can't, I'm not anything in accounting. I would never try to do someone's books or even my own. You know, I go find a resource. Same with legal. And it's like, you, you can't replace all the years of experience that someone has or the education or the money they poured into it and the hours they poured into it. So, you know, search for the resources and take advantage of them for sure. When somebody asks you, someone asked me once, are you good at everything you do? And I said, yes, because if I'm not good at it, I find someone else to do it. And that's, exactly. not, that's not a snotty, I have so much money. I, it's not about that. It's that I have no problem admitting that I'm not good at stuff. And when I'm not, I need to find somebody to help me. Definitely. So you should be doing the things that you're good at and finding resources for the things you're not. So social media, yay. So... Let's talk about you. What year were you born and where? 1963 in Zug, Switzerland. Holy cow, I did not expect that. <laughs> That's a My totally podcast. How yeah. long did you grow up? How long? Tell me, okay, tell me where you lived and when. Well, um, I was only over there. My parents were over there. My dad was over there for work. So I only lived there for two years. I don't remember any of it. I need to go back. Um, my other sister who was born there, she's been back there and I need to do that. Um, and then grew up in the Bay area, California, San Francisco Bay area. So I was there until 17, 18 years ago when I moved up to the Portland, Oregon area. And so I came up here after, um, well, my dad, my dad had passed away. He had committed suicide in 1990, I believe. 
and my mom had moved up here. And so it came to a point I was in a relationship that wasn't going very well. And I was a single mom with my daughter and I was like, I need to get out of the Bay area because that's just a real stressful place to live. If you've ever been there, great place to visit. Don't want to live there, especially as a single mom. So I came up here to be with my mom and, um, I just love it up here. So it was a good move. Okay. So we're going to go back. You moved to San Francisco when you were two and your were your parents always married until your dad committed suicide? Yeah. Okay. So tell me about them and what life was like. San Francisco is stressful. It's hilly. It's expensive. It's beautiful. I live in Reno, so we're four hours away, mm -hmm. but I, in 13 years, I've been through there twice. I've never even gone and like hung out and done fun stuff there, but yeah. I know it's, it's a very stressful, expensive place to live. So you either super love it and thrive off that, or you kind of are done with it. Yeah. So tell me and, about your folks and growing up. And you said you had a sister. How many siblings? Well, I have two sisters, two younger sisters. So I'm the oldest. And we lived in the, actually in the Bay Area. So near San Jose and then, and then into, in the Las Gatos area near Santa Cruz. And um, so it was a very, uh, it, you know, my parents, I love my parents. They were great. I was daddy's little girl. It was fun as a kid. And then around age 11, um, my mom kind of had a mental health breakdown um, I had a girlfriend over and suddenly my mom, I just remember it vividly. It was a Saturday morning, um, cartoons were on, it was a sunny California day, you know, and my mom just kind of was, suddenly she was laughing, then she was crying, then she kind of slid down, she leaned against the wall and kind of slid down and she, it was just, it was bizarre. And we were little, so we're just like, oh my gosh. And luckily my girl, the girlfriend that was over was, she lived next door and her mom was a nurse. So my mom's like, go get, you know, her mom. and so. My mom used to be a nurse as well. So she had enough wherewithal to know that something was wrong. And so um, that was like the first day of the rest of my life, <laughs> I could say, because that was a, a mental health breakdown. It turned into she had to stay in the, she had to be in a locked psych ward for a while. We all went and visited her, which is a very strange place for young people, for old people as well, older. Um, it was just like uh, everything completely changed. Although I would say leading up to it, I do have some memories of her like sitting in dark rooms and stuff that wasn't necessarily normal. You know, as a little kid, you, your radar goes off that something's not quite right, but it's what you know. So you just kind of roll with it. Um, and so that was really the beginning of her mental health journey and our whole journey with it. And so you have to think that back then it was the 70s, the early 70s. And um, so much has happened since then. They're, they've made such great strides in mental health in alcoholism and all that because my parents drank. And so I remember that, um, you know, she had to go through all this intensive therapy, intensive medications, and through the whole thing, they still drank, which is like probably the worst thing ever. So um, anyway, oh, it's just been years of just ups and downs and she would have different, she could go along for a while and be okay, but then there would be another lapse. And um, my dad was a really high power uh, Silicon Valley exec, um, very much a functioning alcoholic, um, kind of a big mover and shaker in Silicon Valley for years. And so it was a very um, interesting dichotomy because we were well off. My dad made good money. He came from nothing and worked his way up. So you know, we are proud of him for that. We are well off, but then 
behind the closed doors, it was just kind of like a madhouse, you know, and that just continued through my entire life as we lived there until, you know, my mom had several suicide attempts that she, she never obviously passed away from them, but she was always kind of um, the one that needed the most help. And so years later, when my dad finally committed suicide or he hadn't tried ever before, that was like the hugest shock because the one that was our, the strong one of the two is the one that went, you know? So it was just, just crazy. So before you were 11, you don't, you remember, I mean, there's a couple things here. One, unless you've lived through the seventies and alcohol use, you don't understand the seventies and alcohol use because I'm a product of the seventies and alcoholic parent. And, Mm -hmm. um, it was not, it, it wasn't a big deal then. Most of us have parents, at least one of our parents, who is a raging alcoholic, where Mm -hmm. behind doors, that was a completely different person, and it wasn't a happy thing. Right. So, if both your parents, were both your parents alcoholics? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. That's enormous. And it's hard for people to understand what it's like as a kid growing up with parents who are drunk and, or angry. So, what was your dad like? with his alcohol use and then your mom like, and I understand the memories before you're 11. You don't know that it's not, you know that it's not right, but you don't know what right is. You don't know what's wrong. right. Exactly. As a kid, you're trying to piece this puzzle together and it just doesn't make sense, but it's the only normal, you know, so mm-hmm. that's very accurate. I completely get that. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit more about the alcohol use and the behaviors and how your dad helped your mom. Um, you know, I just remember that my dad was busy a lot because he was this executive. So he was, he did a lot of traveling. So my, we would be left a lot alone with my mom, um, during business trips. And, you know, looking back, she was obviously very depressed. She would be, um, she would, she'd be kind of manic. Sometimes she'd be like doing everything. And so a lot of the job of my dad required, um, entertaining or that's, I don't know if it was a self-imposed thing or what, but as a VP of the company, we had a lot of people come from all over the world that would come uh, to our home and be entertained by my parents. And my mom was an excellent cook. So she could put out, you know, she could put Martha Stewart to shame basically. So it was, everything was really this weird dichotomy because there was such um, great talent and ability on both their parts. And then they were just crumbling on the other, like if it was two sides of the coin. So, um, she would get overly stressed or put too much pressure on her or my dad would, you know, and they do everything to the nines for all this kind of stuff. And then when, then my dad would be gone and she'd be alone. And when they were home and there would be drinking going on, in the evening, a lot of times it would end up in some kind of fight. I remember glasses being thrown. I remember discussions about my uncle and, you know, I remember us as little kids sitting up, like hiding at the top of the stairs and kind of listening in and peeking and, you know, so as a kid, it was always so, uh, weird. And I don't really ever remember necessarily being scared. Even, even when my mom had her episode, I think by that time, even though it was the first major thing that happened, um, you know, you're just kind of uh, used to it. We were kind of used to it. Or I, I don't know. I think I had, took a different approach to it. Somehow stuff like that didn't scare me. I was more like it turned me on as far as I'm ready to go and handle whatever. And so 
that plays into the fact uh, that I was the oldest. And so I was responsible for everything that my mom couldn't do. And still to this day, I'm her legal guardian and I'm taking care of her and she's at the end of her life and all kinds of stuff is going on, but it's like, you know, decades of it. <laughs> so it gets tiring, but, uh, you know, my dad, as, as his alcoholism progressed and his success and all this, he really kind of became, um, there was times where he was definitely, uh, well, there was emotional abuse the whole time. My mom was just a very emotionally abusive person because she pretty much hated herself. So she wasn't going to be very friendly to us. Um, I remember things like, I wish you kids were never born, blah, 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 stuff like that. And so, you know, you were raised with that stuff. And again, I don't know, it kind of rolled off. It's just kind of like, well, this is how it is. And knowing, you know, as you got older, you didn't want to have friends over because your mom is weird or whatever. Um, my dad would get, there was a period of time where he got physically abusive a little bit with my mom, but that wasn't like a, an ongoing thing or that I remember lasting for very long. But I do remember one time having to take her to the hospital because he had punched her. So that's not good. Um, you know, but when I look through, we were very lucky in so many ways. Like we were afforded all kinds of things. We got to have horses growing up. We got, it was, it was just that weird dichotomy because we grew up in a wealthy family. So you're doing all these things, but on the other side, it's so dysfunctional. It was just the most dysfunctional thing ever. And I had a really hard time, um, concentrating in school. I absolutely hated school when I was in high school. Um, not because I couldn't do it. I was a straight A student, but I could not stand being confined. And um, I think a lot of that is just a factor of there's so much going on, you know, you just can't handle, I can't then be focused in, in my classroom. So I ended up dropping out of school and um, kind of following my intuition. I always felt strongly that if I followed my intuition, I would be okay. And that's pretty much proven to be right. Um, but it's just been a wild ride. <laughs> so your mom had her first major episode when you were 11. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> the alcohol use continues because it's the 70s. Right. For sure. Um, and you're, you're very right. I mean, we've come leaps and bounds since the 70s on mental health issues. Yeah. So what were her suicide attempts? I, um, and how did you find her? And I mean, that's crazy. How many times with you growing up? And you're the oldest of three. Right. So I, as the oldest, understand like there's a role that we all played that was very distinct in the seventh yeah. in this situation. Mm -hmm. uh, and you were the caretaker, you were the therapist. I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, like you were the one that held everything together, the strong one. You said at one point things rolled off. And I think I would probably describe it the same way. So mm -hmm. tell, me, tell me a little bit about that. Um, so the suicide attempts, I remember that um, going into her room, I, I actually remember going into my mom's room, my parents' room to try to take a $20 bill from her purse and go out with my friends. And she just wasn't responding or acting right. And then it became apparent through questioning that she was out of it. And so um, you know, we had all the emergency numbers. So I contacted my dad at work. I contacted her psychiatrist and had him get on the phone with her. So that was attempt number one that I remember the, I believe there was only one other one. Um, and it was the same kind of thing. She overdosed on her, on her psychiatric pills. So, um, 
that obviously wasn't good. And then at one point in there, and I can't remember where in the chronology between the um, suicide attempts, this happened or if it happened before, but she did end up going to an alcohol rehab center and, um, you know, got off of alcohol, which now this is another really interesting thing that I don't know if, if you have experience with, but once someone's been so deeply alcoholic and they go off of it, there's a huge um, chemical process that goes on in your body. And so she was like a completely different person. And this happened right before my dad committed suicide as he went cold turkey off of alcohol, then he was depressed and he wouldn't take the antidepressants. And so it was like a chemical imbalance that just pushed him over the edge. So when she goes off, she lost all sorts of weight. I mean, she was almost skeletal. It was just, just the whole thing is just so weird to think back and all the stuff that went on. And, but she did, she stayed off alcohol, which was good. Um, I don't necessarily remember it being a big boon in her mental health or being that much better. It of course must have been, but um, the problems were so ingrained that, you know, you couldn't really tell that much of a difference. Even though she, did she stop, did she ever start drinking again after that? Um, she had a couple episodes where she did try to, you know, a lot of what happens with, with mentally ill people is they think they can go off their medication or they think, okay, I'm okay now. Um, she pretty much stayed on her medication for many, many years, even probably a couple decades, but then um, probably about a decade ago decided that she didn't want, she didn't like the side effects of her medication. So she was going to go off of it. And supposedly she was going off of it with the help of her psychiatrist here. And <clears throat> I could tell things weren't right. And, you know, HIPAA and all that, I wasn't on her plan. I couldn't get a hold of um, the person. And so she basically went into another episode where we couldn't find her. She'd be driving around, checking herself in a hotels because she would get paranoid. She, she, is bipolar. And then there has been diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. So, um, you know, she's afraid that people are after her and all this kind of stuff. She's not on medication. She thinks she can drink. Oh, it's just a big nightmare. It's just a nightmare. And, but it, what it really does too, is it gives you a real glimpse when you see these stories in the news and people are saying, um, you know, the cops shot someone and they were mentally ill and they say they were just mentally ill. They just needed help. Well, you know, I've been around it enough to know that there are instances where if I was a cop, I would shoot too, because you don't know what they're going to do. They don't know what they're going to do. So I really encourage people to kind of think about it from the cop's point of view. I'm not saying that every instance is correct, but um, it's a hell of a thing to try to manage. And when you're just coming up on it, you don't know what's going on. And the person doesn't present correctly. So it is what it is. I mean, so where were you, you dropped out of school. So <laughs> you, you didn't tell me, I know how you ended up. I want to wait to do the, um, you got your GED later. Let's wait to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you get work? You've climbed the corporate ladder pretty in a pretty big way. Right. Now, again, that was a little different back in the day, but where were you living when you were 15 to 23 ish? Um, when I moved out when I was 19 to my boyfriend's house who I ended up marrying at 24. 
Um, but before that I had moved, my girlfriend and I actually started a house cleaning business one summer to get, actually it was to get our parents off our back about, you have to get a job, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I actually worked at different things. I, I worked at a pizza place and I worked at a dental office and I had regular jobs, but didn't want anything to do with it. I wanted to go have fun. You know, it was the seventies after all. <laughs> so, um, but then we started a, a house cleaning business and actually ended up cleaning the house of someone who was a model for this, um, for ski any mountain. I don't know if you remember that store that was in the Bay area and they had a house up in Tahoe. So we went up to clean that house and, um, I, it was like an, October and I was like, I'm not leaving here. I, I just fell in love with it. I'm like, I'm staying. It was Squaw Valley was hiring for ski lift operators. So, um, I told my girlfriend, I'm not going back. I'm going to stay here. So we did that, uh, for a year, which was so much fun. And that was before we had done that, I had, um, signed up to get into San Jose community college for cosmetology for doing hair. And so there was a long waiting list. And so in the meantime, I'm up at Tahoe, living the life of ski bum, loving it. Um, you know, my parents supported whatever I couldn't, uh, pay. So again, I was lucky that way. Um, just had a blast. And then there was a crux in, or a, a fork in the road where it was time to either go to the community college or stay there. And I remember that was one of the forks in the road of life where you sit there and go, I would love to just be a ski bum, but I'm going to be, um, responsible. And so I went, and went to cosmetology school. Um, then I was with my boyfriend, we were living together, ended up getting married a few years later. So the whole not having a high school diploma never really hurt me in any way. I became a hairstylist. I was, uh, did really well. Um, did that for about seven years and then that got boring to me. It was, it was pretty, that is something that's a really good thing for people to have to do because you're working so intimately with someone and you're constantly, you have to constantly be on and I'm an ex or an introvert actually. So I don't mind getting on and talking and things like these. I don't mind telling, having speeches or doing presentations, but to have to do it continuously every single day, it gets rough. So um, I was ready to change from that and ended up getting uh, a job at a construction company as a receptionist and it was a big commercial construction company in the Bay area. And that's kind of what started my career in corporate and in construction. Wow. So you weren't living at home when, what happened with your dad? Because men have a higher success rate when they have a suicide attempt and clearly mom tried a couple times without mm -hmm. success, but dad tried once and was successful. So right. where were you and what happened with that? So I, let's see, where was I? Was I in the, maybe I wasn't in the construction company yet. I must not have been. I got a job at um, the Marriott Hotel, Santa Clara Marriott, and was in the reservation department. So I was married. I got out of hair. Um, and I think my husband and I had just broken up actually a few months before my dad's suicide. So at this point I am in the, um, Marriott hotel reservation department. And I get a call from my sister that says, dad tried to hurt himself. And so you have to understand that be before this, my parents lived in a, um, million dollar home. It was in sunset magazine. It was, you know, 
uh, in Monte Sereno, a very wealthy area up on a hill. Um, it was my dad's dream. He'd come from, you know, nothing up to this. And it was the recession back then. And my dad's alcoholism had progressed enough to where he would end up, he'd come home, get drunk and would be, you know, he'd fall asleep at the table or whatever. And he'd end up calling people drunken and, and saying whatever he felt about them, which got him kind of blacklisted <clears throat> and he lost his job. So he is going to become a consultant. Well, it was the time before the whole yuppie thing. And so the older workers were not being hired for anything, no matter what. And let alone the fact that, you know, whatever my dad's reputation had preceded him with the alcoholism, he wasn't getting it. So he ended up losing his house. So that's where it really started. That's where his spiral started. Um, I remember having to help move stuff out of the, our big house that we grew up in. And he was just kind of like, not there. You could look at his eyes and he was like blank. So um, basically that's what killed him is I think he lost everything he had worked for his entire life. And then he decided to go off of alcohol, alcohol, because he realized that that, um, is part of the factor of what, what caused him to lose everything and that he couldn't get a job then. Um, and so that's where the whole chemical imbalance came and he went and got, saw a doctor. He lost all kinds of weight really quickly. Same with my mom when she went off of alcohol. They both lost all kinds of weight at the time and, but he wouldn't take, uh, he never actually would admit that he was alcoholic, never through his whole life. And then he would not take the antidepressants. So, um, we would be in, and I remember they had to move out of their house and one of their friends was a real estate agent and she got them in a rental. And I remember when I walked into that house, I was like, there is something wrong with this house. It was creepy like it i know that there was some kind of evil in that house and i don't i'm not you know i'm kind of woo but i'm not like woo. <laughs> i mean but when i walked in it's like this there's this is not right um and i you know but they were doing their thing and my mom ended up getting a job which she hadn't worked for years but she wanted to try to help and i think that further embarrassed my dad and it was just a horrible spiral and so anyway my sister the youngest sister was still with them so she was there going to school and i got a call for her for, from her at the marriott reservation center and she said dad tried to hurt himself well i knew you know my dad was, had been terribly depressed for so long so um, I thought, okay, well, he tried to commit suicide, but we'll get to talk to him. We'll get him better. Maybe this is the thing they needed. Well, so when I left and I drove up to the house, the coroner's van was there. So at that point I knew that he was, you know, gone. And so I walked into a whole chaotic scene. Um, just one of the many through the years where my mom was just wailing about her um, best friend. And, you know, there were sheriff's people, there were plainclothes people, um, a man, I remember wiping his eyes cause he had been crying. And uh, what had happened is, so my sister had called me because she's the one that found my dad. And so my dad was up in an upstairs bedroom and they had not completely unpacked. So there was lots of boxes. So he had the wherewithal and planned this, I'm sure, where he put a bunch of heavy boxes in front of the door so it couldn't be opened all the way. So when she came and however she was trying to find him and knew something was wrong, she could only open the door a certain way and only saw like from his knees down and that he was lying on the floor and knew that something was wrong. Um, but he had shot himself in the heart. So he, he made sure that it was going to be a deadly force and um 
it was just, you know, seeing those grown men crying was rough. And I, for a long time, I wished I had gone up there. I kind of wanted to go up there. I don't think they would have let me. Um, now I'm glad that I didn't. Um, and you know, my sister didn't see him fully either. Um, but yeah, it was a huge deal. She, you know, then because she's the one that found him, then she had to be questioned. I mean, we all were questioned about things, but she's the one that found him. So that she was questioned because they have to determine that she's not the one that did it. So that was a huge deal for her, obviously. And my mom obviously wasn't mentally stable. So then the first thing I did was call my grandparents who were up here and told them what happened. And they got a flight out right then. And so then I kind of had to take on the, um, the task of answering the phone and um, intervening when all their friends would call because as people found out what happened, all kinds of stuff, um, calls were coming in. So, you know, instead of having time to really grieve or even deal with it, you're trying to just answer phone calls and get the <laughs> get stuff done. So it was just crazy. So um, this was about 1990. Now, you already mentioned you had gotten married and you guys were split up. So what ended up happening with that? Um, well, basically I probably should never have gotten married. I kind of, we were together for five years and it was kind of like, well, are we going to get married or not? And I kind of was leaning towards no, but I wanted, wanted to be married. You know, I was 24. It's like, it's time to get married. Um, but I think deep down I knew that I shouldn't. And my ex-husband was, um, you know, he's a great guy and everything, but he was, uh, had his own issues and was a little bit controlling and stuff like that. And that wasn't going to work very well with me. And, um, you know, I just did it for the wrong reasons, I think. <clears throat> so you got into construction in Marriott. What, what happened with your mom and your sisters after your dad passed away? Um, so my mom, when my grandparents came, they took her back up to Oregon, purchased a house for her. Basically my aunt and uncle took over all of her financial stuff and they had to go through, it's just a nightmare when someone dies in any way and you have to go through all their things to figure out what's what. But my dad had had so many different kinds of investments and, um, you know, because he had been making so much money at one point, they were tax shelters. Well, it turned out that then my mom had to pay tax on these and um, she couldn't get out of some of them and some of them were losing money, but she still had to pay taxes. It was just crazy. Um, and then my sister ended up getting a um, studio apartment or something and finished out her, her schooling, but she definitely was affected by what happened. Um, we all were. My other sister was down at San Diego State, so she wasn't, she didn't even come back uh, she came for the funeral, obviously, but she wasn't there when it all happened. So she was kind of um, a little bit distanced from that. Um, so you, you ended up working construction, you got divorced, and you describe yourself to me when we um, email back and forth as a partier. Uh-huh. I was a partier. <laughs> you were the partier? Yeah. So that did that continue on? Because I let's talk about you from 24. Because you've already gone through this horrific suicide and your mom moving, but thankfully she was being taken care of. Yeah, that must have been a relief to you. Was it hard? It was a relief because I knew that I couldn't handle that. I mean, that was just too much. She was like a you know not able to handle anything after that. Um. And so I was a partier all through high school and into my marriage and all of that. And I still remained a partier. 
um, until, and I went into a very deep depression and really drank a lot after my dad's suicide. I remember, um, I had friends that I'd go into a certain bar and I would drink too much and they'd have to cut me off and they were all worried about me. And I mean, I was just like spiraling down. Um, and then, um, you know, I had a date with a guy. It was like the best date I ever had and ended up getting pregnant <laughs> from that. And that's that was, a good date. that's a really, was good, a really date. good date. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so that's where my daughter was conceived. And, you know, I knew pretty much from that point forward that I was, it was like, okay, I'm 29. I was 29 at that point. So I need to, you know stand up and be responsible and get off of this pity pot and all the stuff that's going on. And so from even that point, my daughter was the catalyst for good for me. Um, she's the best thing that ever happened to me for that reason. I didn't want to ever have her have to go through the things I went through as a child. Um, and I wanted to be able to give her, you know, like every parent I think wants to be able to give their, their child more than they had. Um, and for me, that meant stability and security because while I didn't have the finances that my parents had there, it was more uh, valuable for me to give her the stability and security of a lifestyle that I didn't have. So that was my focus then from that point on. Um, and I barely made, I was not sure if I was going to go on welfare or what was going to happen because I was always on the cusp of um, being able to either get help from different um, government, you know, agencies, but I was always just a little bit over. So like barely making it, but too, a little too high to get help. So, you know, always kind of pissed me off, but I was in retrospect, I'm glad that I didn't do that. So I had to raise my daughter on my own. Um, her father didn't want anything to do with the whole thing. And my mom was gone. My sisters really weren't around. I had some really good friends, luckily, but pretty much I did the whole thing on my own. And I still sometimes look back and don't know how I did that. But, um, you know, it was a great experience. So basically you'd gone, you'd had like 10 to 15 years of partying yourself and mm -hmm. all the drama and caretaking of parents growing up. And now huge shift. I mean, that's a massive shift. And I know from having kids that it is the single biggest change. There's nothing as big as kids change you. Right. So there's something I, I'm dying for you to tell the story because tell me about your daughter and her growing up first, and then I'll ask my question. Okay. Um, well, it was, you know, she, first of all, the delivery part was terrible. <laughs> I had the worst. The pregnancy was fine. The delivery was terrible. And so um, the, I ended up, the baby got in distress after I was in labor for 30 some odd hours. And um, you know how everyone says, yeah, it's okay. Because once you have the baby, you'll forget. It's like, well, I've never forgotten. <laughs> I was like, I will never forget this. So anyway, she was in distress. She had to be in the NICU for three days um, and then everything was okay and brought her home. And I was renting a room with a friend out of a friend's house, you know, who was generous enough to have to let me do that. Um, and then I had the job at the construction company. And once I had my daughter, you know, they were very 
I did a great job for them, but they were very kind. And I think they boosted my salary a little bit more than I would, than they would have maybe. And so, um, but I worked my butt off too, because then I'm like, suddenly you've got more skin in the game there. You know, I don't want, I need the, I need the health insurance and I need the income and I need to, um, boost my income. So I need to just be kicking butt at work. And I was really worried the first three months about having to put my daughter in daycare because, you know, there's, you just don't know who you're going to get. I went and looked at so many daycares and so many were terrible. And I was so worried and luckily found this really wonderful woman who had daycare out of her house and their whole family was involved and it was a great place. So then having the job and being a single mom actually ended up being a good thing because the daycare gave me a little bit of a break that I needed to be able to focus on stuff other than my daughter. Um, but she was healthy. She has always been healthy. Um, she was so, about six when you moved to Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she had started school already. So what made that transition? That transition, I was in a relationship that I had been in for about five years that, um, was going nowhere. And it was one where it was kind of real, uh, like I had to move to leave it because I was just sucked in. I think both of us were in, it was just a negative, I don't know if it was negative because the relationship, it was very volatile, I'd say. Um, and it was like, I have to get out of here or I will never be able to break up with this person. That's basically what it came down to. And so, and plus, because she, my daughter was, I don't think she had started kindergarten yet. She was at Montessori. I had, you know, gotten her in Montessori preschool, but it was going to be time to start her in school. And the city that I lived in was not the best school district because I couldn't afford the best school district. And I couldn't afford Montessori going forward either when we got into um, K through 12. So it was like, well, it's time to get out of here. So moved up and moved into where my mom was living with my grandfather who was not doing well. Um, and we moved in and my grandfather passed away like two weeks later. Um, and so we were able to then be there with my mom. I was able to, my mom had come down a lot, um, to visit when my daughter was young and stayed for quite a bit of time to try to help me out as much as possible. You know, my mom ended up being where she was pretty much functioning. She was doing okay. She had gotten over all the horrible stuff that had gone on. Um, and so now we were up there and we were able to kind of reconnect. <clears throat> and it was, um, it was pretty okay, except I, I wanted to be able to purchase a house. So I got a job, started saving for a house. And so we ended up being there for two years. That was kind of a bit long with the history of me and my mom, you know, I was kind of ready to get out of there before then, but it was really good for my daughter to get to know her grandmother. And, um, we got to get a puppy and, you know, stuff like that. And so, um, she was doing well. And then I was able to purchase my house and, um, the same house that I live in now that I still love. And we've always had the dogs and, um, you know, now my daughter's grown and out of the house and it, I still, I look back on it and think, wow, I can't believe I did all that through that whole mess. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's like seeing somebody's kids after years and you don't realize they've grown up. When you look back in time over your life, you think, holy cow. Yeah we don't see ourselves as in the same light day to day as other people hearing the story when it's laid out, like more like this and in mm -hmm. you think, Holy crap. Yeah. So she, your daughter in school with the structure, let's talk about that now. Yeah. 
So she, she did not like school. Um, she had a hard time in school really from an early age. I remember I would get calls she, that when she was like in first or second grade that she would bite or maybe she wasn't biting at that point, but she'd have to be put on the wall because she was acting out and she had a really great uh, second grade teacher that helped her tremendously. That was really a strong, stern person, but would, um, you know, set her aside when she needed to and all that. And we had plenty of parent teacher conferences. I mean, this started the, her whole grade school career was parent teacher conferences. She was having a difficult time. Um, she understood it, but she couldn't focus. And so then towards when she was like about 11, um, things started really going south for her and she became suicidal around 13, I think. And, um, so that was extremely scary. Um, so I got her into a doctor to see what was going on and they tested for ADHD and she tested like off the charts for ADHD. That was part of it. Um, and then she was also tested for bipolar. And so we started working with that. Um, and the whole time, you know, I'm fighting with the school system and, um, I wish I had the energy to really reform our school systems because what I experienced just completely sucked. And, um, really they weren't there for my daughter. There are some for sure people that were there for my daughter, but otherwise it's such a machine that you're just stuck. You're just a cog in the machine basically. Um, but we had to, we went through the IEP program where you have an individual education plan um, get that road up. And so I had to just be her advocate through all of that and push back and say no. And I mean, it really, it takes a lot. And I think all the crap that I grew up with and having to do that really helped me because I'm not going to put up with any crap. I've put up with enough crap for my mom <laughs> and everything else. So, um, it just wasn't working. And I wanted to try to get her to be homeschooled through like connections academy or whatever those things started coming into play about then but she said you know that's not going to work for me because i can't focus when i'm by myself she didn't want to be in school and you know she was teased terribly and just all kinds of stuff you know that whole age group between 11 and 13 is no fun so she didn't want to be at school but she ended up going through getting into high school um and then it was coming to a point where, she, you know, she's like 16 or 17. It was 17 where she decided that, you know, she couldn't stand it anymore. And I saw what was happening and I didn't want her to have to do it anymore. You know, we had gone to Sylvan Learning Center. We'd gone, I had exhausted every possible avenue. Um, and so I said, that's fine because I completely understood how she felt. But I said, you're not going to just be able to sit here and not do anything. You have to be productive. So, um, we tried to develop a plan as to how she would be productive and she was very creative. She's always been very creative. So since I had gone through the beauty school route, I thought she would do great with it. And it was something that she'd be able to do. And she was interested in that. So in order to do that, she had to get her GED and that's where the whole GED story comes in. Yay. I love this story. <laughs> So meanwhile, back at the ranch, you have never graduated high school or gotten your GED. You're still okay. moving up the corporate ladder. You're getting into okay. content marketing. I mean, this is a pretty big deal right. with a degree, but you haven't graduated high school. So how did this come about, you two doing this together? Um, 
well, basically I knew that my daughter needed the, uh, support of someone being there and I was the one to be there with her. Um, and so we enrolled in a GED class at the community college and, you know, I could have gone and just gone to the class with her while she did it. But I thought, well, what the hell, you haven't gotten yours, you might as well go through it, and then you know what she's going through. And so it was a really cool experience because, you know, the people in the class thought it was a cool story, and the people in the class just ran the gamut as far as people from society. You had um, a lot, people that were a lot older than I was, you had teenagers, you had um, just any society member you could practically think of was there. So it was a really eclectic class, very interesting, a lot of fun. Um, and so we got through it. We did the homework together. We did the whole thing. We got to, through the, um, we got our GED together and she had to get her GED in order to enroll in um, cosmetology school. And so she did that and we enrolled her in the cosmetology school. Um, she went to a great, to a Veda school here, a Veda Institute in Portland. And um, it was a, such a killer school. And um, that just opened her eyes to what could be. And her, during the, her whole school career, when she was having such a hard time, I kept trying to tell her, and it's so hard for kids because you don't know what you don't know, but that once you get out of high school, it's going to be so much better. You don't have to worry about what these people are saying or doing. Your whole life becomes your own. And so she finally started getting to see that. But the, dif the difficulty is we live about mm, 40 miles from Portland. And so to get her there, um, you know, she wasn't driving yet and I wasn't going to let her drive into the city. Um, so we had to, I got her on public transportation. So one day we both got on public transportation, did the whole route so she would know how to do it. So that's how she got to school. Um, and so I knew exactly where she would be too, if anything happened, what, where the bus route would go. Um, <clears throat> and so she did that for quite a while. And then I think it got, it came to the time where she did get her driver's license and was able to drive into the school. But that whole period of time, 18 months, she just grew like you can't even imagine because she's coming into her own. She's learning new skills. She's um, blossoming. She's having to deal with all this stuff, the, um, you know, public transit, which is a quite a thing on its own. Um, but she did it and uh, she got to do fashion shows and all kinds of neat stuff that Aveda does. So um, she did that, got a job at one salon, was there for about a year, didn't really like it, got a job at another one. And she's just happily, working and living on her own now so so what happened in the meantime all that's going on your mom is nearby mm -hmm. and at what point I love I do I love the story that you guys got your GED together though I was excited about that <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I mean how many people can say that so yeah. what at what point did you become your mom's guardian and how is your mom you said your mom went off of her meds and she's having these episodes so let's catch that up a little bit sure so that was probably actually i can tell you when it was because it was right when my now husband and i started going out and he's just a saint because pretty much when we started going out my mom is when my mom decided to go off her medication so she started going MIA and all kinds of crazy stuff was happening and she'd call me and we, when I told you that um, we moved up and we had gotten a puppy, we had gotten a Rottweiler Shepherd 
when my daughter was five. And so we still had him. His name was Samson. He was extremely protective, an awesome dog. But she would start saying, someone's in the backyard. Someone's in the backyard. So I'd say, okay, well, I'll bring Samson over then and he can be back there with you, you know, or whatever. And the real weird part about my mom's mental illness through the years is she can um, present as it, things are almost normal. So it's really hard to tell sometimes when she's crossed the line. It's like you think you can get sucked into what's going on and then suddenly it's like, okay, duh, it's this is happening again, but it takes you a while. So that's even more crazy making because it's not like suddenly it, it's black and white. I mean, there were definitely some black and white times, but other times you're just trying to help, you're trying to do whatever, you're trying to fix it because I became the fix it person. And then you realize there is no fixing it because this is happening again. And so that was one of those times when Sam, I kept bringing the dog over and it was like, what is going on? This is weird. Um, anyway, so she decides to go off her medication. She kind of tells me, she bring, she calls me over one day and says, I'm going to have to sell this house. And she's kind of crying and this real, um, she has a real dramatic flair, you know, she's like, I'm, I love it here, but I, it's time for me to move into a, one of these expensive condos on this hill that I knew she could not afford. I'm like, how are you going to afford that? You know? And so I'm sitting there just watching this happen because there's nothing I can do. I'm not her guardian then. She is, you know, an adult and I don't have any way to bring her back to reality. So I just have to kind of watch all this happen. And so then she just kind of spiraled. She started, um, um, purchasing all the publisher's clearinghouse things, thinking she's going to win the publisher's clearinghouse. I mean, her house became kind of like a hoarding situation where there was stuff everywhere. It really spiraled into something kind of crappy, but it was never, the police were called. I don't know how many times her neighbors were all involved. Um, but we couldn't do anything about it. And I would say to the police, what can we do? And they couldn't do anything until my mom became dangerous to herself or someone else. And finally that day came um, and so my uncle became her guardian at that point, which was a huge relief because then we could get her help and she had to go back into a locked psych ward and she stayed there for quite a while. And, um, then it was all about trying to maintain the estate. And, um, so that it was just more struggle because she had this house she had pretty much blown through the money that my dad had set up in a trust fund. And, uh, I didn't necessarily agree with what my uncle did as far as some of the stuff that he did. Um, finally, you know, I had asked him several times to turn the guardianship over to me and he was like, I'll do it at X point in time. Well, he waited until there was no hope and gave the guardianship to me. And I got then an attorney that was a, an elder care, an elder law attorney. And so we went through the whole thing to see what was going on. And, you know, she was just shaking her head because there was so much that could have been done had I gotten in there earlier. So I was saying, well, is there a way, can, I mean, I was angry, you know, I wanted it to be made right. And, uh, was there a way to go back and, um, you know, try to rectify things through the legal process. And she said, no, that's just going to, you know, cause more problems in your family. It's not worth it. And, you know, so I've, so there's all kinds of weird dichotomies and <clears throat> relationships going forward through all of that. Um, but basically when my, you know, when I started dating the man who's my husband now, my mom was going, we didn't know where she was half the time she'd call and leave these 
you know, cryptic messages and she'd be in a hotel room. I remember going to one hotel room where everything was, all the lights were off and all the windows were, the shades were drawn and she's sitting in there. And um, it was just odd. Uh, it was the really weird part was when she would have these breaks and her, how her physical appearance changed. It was really interesting. Um, she's always really kept herself up and, you know, makeup and hair and all that. And when she'd have these physical things, it would be like her hair would be slicked down, kind of greasy and not just from not doing anything. It was like a physical change. It was a very interesting. It's been kind of an interesting journey in the, in the fact that I kind of like to look from the outside and examine it. And I kind of have always had that. And I think that's part of what got me through is because I didn't, uh, I always knew it was outside of me. I think a lot of people think they're bad or this happened and they're so weird and everything's going on. And so they take it on to me and they're bad. And somehow I was able to not do that. And so, um, that's just one piece of advice I would give to anyone as, you know, you're not defined by what's happening to you. It's just an experience and the experience can make you stronger, which I believe my experiences did for me. So when did you get guardianship? of your mom how long ago has it been you've kind of run for full circle here by this yeah time. right so i got guardianship five years ago and um <clears throat> so she it was still she was doing better but she still wouldn't really function very well as far as she moved into an assisted living place where she had her own apartment and you know there's people of all ages there and she was she 70 two-ish, 73 then. No, actually she was 75 because she'll be 80 this year. And so she still was plenty young and there were people that were much older than her that were out walking every day. It's a beautiful area. Um, and I would say, you know, you need to get out walking and we try to have her get out walking. She'd always say no. She would say no. She doesn't want to do it. She would um, just have a general apathy towards life. And that's been consistent through her whole life. Um, she likes shopping. So uh, my daughter and my self and her would go shopping and we'd go out to lunch. That was like our main <laughs> entertainment. She'd come over to my house a lot of times and we'd watch like um, say yes to the dress and all those kind of fun shows, you know? And so we did that for a while. And then she started physically not doing well probably a year ago. And really no one could find out what, what was wrong, but she was having a hard time walking. She started losing a lot of weight. She doesn't have cancer. She's had every test in the world. And basically what it's come down to is she stopped doing things and her body starts shutting down. So whatever you do, people keep moving <laughs> because to watch what she's doing, you know, she's going to be 80 in December and she can't now get around and except in a wheelchair. And there's no reason for that. There are 80 year olds that are, you know, running marathons or five K's or whatever, at least walking. Um, so that's kind of sad and it's frustrating because no matter what you say, she's not ever listened. So I just have to, um, you know, you have to just go with it. And, you know, the only way through the only way to, to get to the other side is to go through it. That's another thing that I always said to myself when things were going on, it's like, this won't be like this all the time in order to get out of it, you have to go through it. So just keep going through it. So. Holy cow. So <laughs> what helped you really, what were the, let's end on a positive note and talk to me <laughs> about, I know your daughter was a big pivotal moment having her being pregnant with her, but what else, what were your tools that helped you get through things? 
what advice would you give people that are really struggling with some of this? Mental illness is pretty enormous these days. It is enormous. And um, we're really lucky because she's in it. My mom's in assisted living because of her mental state. So she's covered by Medicare and Medicaid. Whereas a lot of people, for whatever reason, and I don't know how it works that she got, she got this lucky, but I'm lucky that she is there because I hear stories of people who have an elderly person who maybe they have dementia or they're losing their mind in another way and they're at home and someone has to quit their job and stay. And then you have to deal with the abuse because whether they have mental illness or not, as you age, a lot of times things happen and people come become abusive and it's just not fair to the caregiver, but it's something that has to be done. So, um, the only advice I can say is know that it it's separate from you. And so you have to do the best that you can. I, I by no means am perfect. Have I ever been perfect? I've made a ton of mistakes. I've been a jerk. You know, I've been um, triggered. I will, I can get easily triggered by my mom still. Um, I've had tons of counseling, <laughs> you know, it's like you have to find the resources that you can to get the support that you need. So mm -hmm. seek out counseling, talk to people, go see a clergyman if you need to do that, get into spirituality if you're not religious, because I'm absolutely not religious at all. Um, and so I think, you know, growing up, I, I, we were raised Catholic and I always didn't feel right about organized religion, even as a little kid, it just didn't feel right to me. And, um, that's not to say it's not right for other people. That's just my choice. But I think just knowing yourself and understanding that what you know is true for you and that's okay. And that's where you get your power. So don't try not to let other people dictate what you have to be or what you do. I mean, that happens enough in life, but if you can somehow grab onto your own power and hold onto it, it you will be able to ride out a lot more storms than you think you can. True story. Carmen, thank you so much for sharing. You're, you have quite a story. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me come on and tell the story. I think it's important. I really think what you're doing is important and great because I think it's important that people share their stories because that's the only way we help other people. You know, it's like, don't keep things in the shadows. It's not doing anyone any good there. So get it out in the open and let other people learn from it. Well, that's what you are. That's, that's what I try. I'm trying to do with this is that people shouldn't feel alone. No. And a lot of times we feel alone and we label ourselves or we let other people label us and we don't realize how strong we are. And you know, we're not alone. And like you said, you need to surround yourself with people that are going to help you, whatever that is. And however it looks like, there's no one answer. It's not a one and done. And so I'm, I'm, I always feel privileged when people are willing to share their story, give it a voice and wings and uh, try to let other people know that they're not in this by themselves. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor rerouting like share. And of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.